0: Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? All right. Uh, Hey, if you got a Bible, why don't you grab it? We'll be in Genesis chapter 17, where we're going to be looking at the first circumcision in the Bible. Um, Now, I know some of you came to see a loved one dedicated today, and you're like, I didn't know it was that kind of service. Uh, Don't worry, it's not. Um, I do not have any knives sharpened up here with me. It's not that kind of service. Um, but what we're going to see in our text this morning is uh, circumcision is actually a preview um, of what we're going to be celebrating later in our service today. And this text, um, whether or not you came for a loved one today, this text, it's full of good news for you and me. So let's look at it, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter, so buckle up, let's take it in, and then we'll chat. It says this when abram was 99 years old the lord appeared to abram and said to him i am god almighty walk before me and be blameless that i may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly then abram fell on his face and god said to him behold my covenant is with you and you shall no longer be the uh, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. he has broken my covenant. Verse 15, and God said to Abram, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her then Abram fell on his face and he laughed and he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And it, Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, which your footnote probably says there means Laughter which I just think this shows God has a sense of humor. He's like, you're going to fall on the ground and laugh at me? Just for that, you're going to name your kid Laughter, just so you remember this moment. You shall call his name Isaac. Looking for my footnote. Where was I? What verse were we in, anybody? Somebody help your pastor here. 19, thank you. <laughs> God's like, see, I, I'm getting the laugh at you now. Okay. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you behold I've blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly he shall be the father of 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. The man of faith, everybody. Verse 25. And Ishmael, his own son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So there comes a moment in everyone's life when you begin thinking about the legacy that you're going to leave behind after you're gone. Um, Anyone been there? Anyone start thinking about that? Like, what's going to happen after me? Anyone have these thoughts in life before? Yeah, uh, several of us. Um, Abram, he is uh, 99 years old. And God comes to him and he says, let's talk about what's going to happen after you're gone. Now, um, let me just pause and say this real quick. This doesn't mean that Abraham is done. Um, We're going to actually see in the coming weeks, his greatest acts of faithfulness that he is most known for still lie ahead of this man. He's going to live to be 175 years old. Uh, So 99 it ain't that old to god some of you are like critics of the bible not you but critics of the bible will be like see this is why you can't trust the bible 175 years old are you kidding me it's like well this was before mcdonald's and big gulps and walking sidewalks right and big screen tvs i'm kidding there's a reasonable explanation for why he lives this long i don't have the time to get into it the point is at the ripe old age of 99 he's basically ripe for a midlife crisis and it's at this point, here's the big idea in all of this. What we need to see is this. Your legacy is something you should be thinking about now while you still have time to shape it. So the question is, are you? Because um, I, I think a lot of times what can happen is we're so busy chasing the next thing. Um, we're, we're, we're looking for the next thing we're after. This is the thing that'll make me happy. We're so busy chasing after the next thing we're like a dog in a treadmill with a carrot in front of us. We're just going, going, going that we don't really give thought to the legacy that we will leave behind after we're gone until it's too late. Abram at 99, you're like, I'm not 99 yet. Well, that's like kind of like 45 for us. And now some of you are like, oh man, this just got real. God wants to talk about him, about his legacy now. He wants him thinking about it now because this is something that... We, we need to give attention to while we still have energy and time by God's grace uh, to sow into it. And so God shows up to this man, and he does something significant. He changes his name. Uh, now, that might not sound that significant to us, um, because we do nicknames in our culture. I was asking people this week, do you know what your name means? And like half the people knew what their name meant. Um, it's probably 100% now, because everyone else pulled Google out and Googled their name. And like, oh, this is cooler. Oh, that's what my name means. Um, but in Abram's culture, everybody knew what their name meant because your name was a big deal. Um, your name, they understood it to be indicative of your character. And so parents would name their children really in hopes of what they would grow into. And so Abram's parents named him Abram, which means high father, um, which I just— I. I I think, what a funny name for a toddler to like walk into class and be like, hi, my name's High Father. Like, sure you are, buddy. There's your cubby over there. Have a fruit snack. Like, but this idea was his parents were saying, hey, he's gonna grow up to be someone noble, um, that people can come under his protection, um, that he can be a man that is known with the regard of High Father. So his parents name him this in hopes. And and maybe he got teased for it in elementary school. I don't know. Um, But what's so funny is, Just when he begins to finally start living into that name his parents gave him, just when he's becoming this honorable man um, that his nephew Lot can be so foolish and yet so well protected by this honorable high man who's like a father figure to him, just when he starts living into his name, God shows up and says, I am going to take you far beyond your parents' hopes for you. No longer are you going to be called Abram, your name now is going to be Abraham, which tells me that God likes puns, which makes me really happy. And and the meaning there goes from high father to Abraham means father of a multitude, In other words, what he's saying is, this whole thing that I've been doing with you, Abraham, talking to you, drawing near to you, making a covenant to be your God, this isn't just for you. This isn't supposed to end with you. In verse 7, he says, you remember that covenant I made with you? We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 15. He says, you remember that covenant where... you were passed out on the ground over there, and I did all of the work, and I walked through all of the dead carcasses to show, here's how this relationship's going to work. Uh, I'm going to be God. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to be gracious and keep this relationship alive. You know that incredible thing that happened to you? Well, that covenant I made with you, I am now extending that to all of your offspring after you. So so what we're seeing here is all of the children of Abraham will get to have this same kind of life-giving relationship with God based on faith and grace. Um, Now, we live so far on the other side of this moment that I think we failed to see how crazy this is. Um, I mean, think about this. Every single religion has um, a prophet or some spiritual mighty figure that has an encounter with the divine. But in every other religion, what happens is they have this encounter with the divine and then they write a book about it. They tell you about it and you just kind of have to take their word for it. Like God told me this, here it is. And you have to rely on that. And there's no direct contact with God. It's kind of a secondhand relationship. But what we're seeing in Christianity is this is not the case. That Christianity isn't that God spoke to Abram and they had a great thing going and now we can have this secondary experience through Abraham. What we're seeing in this covenant is that the God of the Bible is someone who wants to draw near to each and every one of us in this room. He wants to draw near to each and every person in every nation of the world, that he loves to draw near to people and do the same thing we've been seeing with Abram so far. And if that doesn't blow your mind... Um, I was was praying for us on the way in this morning. I I saw the sunrise this morning. I was just, like, if that doesn't blow your mind that the God who painted that sunrise this morning thought of you and thought, I would like to have a relationship with you. I would like to be faithful to you and give you a new life. If that thought doesn't blow your mind, I pray that the spirit of God would just wake you up this morning so you could go, are you kidding me that he wants to have a relationship with me? That's what we're seeing here. A God who wants to draw near not to just one mighty man of faith, but men and women of every station of life and every nation wherever they are found. He is a God who is big enough and loving enough to be known by all of us. And he changes, here's the cool thing, he changes not only Abraham's name to be a daily reminder of this, but he changes Sarai's too. Uh, Sarai's name, uh, which means princess, he changes to Sarah, which again, I'm just feeling real good about the dad jokes. I'm like, God, you went from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. You love puns. This is awesome. Um, Sarai and Sarah are actually the same word. They're variants on the same Hebrew word, but here's the difference between them. Sarai looks backwards I'm probably looking back on Sarah's noble origins, that she comes from royalty, and important family. But Sarah, the way that grammar is constructed, looks forward probably to the kings that God said will come from her in verse six. See, Sarah, she thought her best days were behind her. We saw it last week. She said, God's prevented me from having children. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. All my best days are behind me. And so I'm just gonna go crazy on the people in my life And what God shows up and says is, your best days aren't behind you, Sarah. She says, no, my name's Sarah. And he's like, no, you've had that one wrong for 70-something years. It's actually Sarah. Because, Sarah, you will not be the last of your royal family. I'm telling you, kings are going to come from you. Here's the big idea in all of this. Um, what we're seeing in these name changes, what we're seeing in this whole interaction is that the goal of faith is not just for us to walk with God and make a difference in the world. That's a great thing. That's a great place to start. But the story of Abram doesn't end after Genesis 16. Thank God it doesn't. Uh, What we see is it moves on to this. The goal of faith isn't just to walk with God and make a difference in the world, but for you and I to leave a legacy of others walking with God after we're gone as a result. That's what God's promising to do here. He says to Abraham and Sarah that you're going to have a great legacy, so great that both of you, you need new names. And and the case I want to make this morning is... um, This isn't just good news for Abraham and Sarah. Um, This is the kind of legacy that you and I can have as we respond in faith like we'll see this couple do in this story. See, it's so easy in Genesis to go, that was nice for Abraham and Sarah. Cool that we're still talking about them today. That'll never be me. But what we see in the pages of Scripture from this moment on is normal, ordinary, everyday people respond in faith like we're going to see in this story here, um, that you and I, we can have the same kind of legacy that we can impact lives after we're gone. And if you're like, no way, not me. Okay, well... um, I'd say two things. Remember Genesis 16. Abraham is not that impressive of a person. Like, you're not doing so bad. And the other thing I would say is let's, let's look at this story and see how he responds in faith and consider if the Spirit of God might encourage such faith in us this morning. Um, God tells Abraham to do two things. And so this is where we'll see his response. He says, number one, walk blamelessly before me. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear that word blameless. Um, I don't think it's the best translation in English, because at least me, I think of like perfection. Like there's nothing I can nail you on. Like I'm argumentative. So someone that's blameless truly has nothing that I could grab onto or poke at, which must mean they're a perfect person. That's not what the... None of you are argumentative? Come on. Um... The Hebrew word here underneath blameless, it, it's not like that. The word, what it signifies is wholeness of relationship. So it's, it's talking about integrity and wholeness rather than no sin. This isn't saying you have no sin. This is saying that you are in a position of life that is whole. You are integritous. The New Testament will use terms like above reproach, uh, a much more common term since we're in the Old Testament that Um, the Holy Spirit's been highlighting to me this year in my read-through of the Bible is wholehearted, This is something God says on repeat to God's people. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. This is something new for me this year. He keeps saying, I want you to seek after me with your whole heart. I don't want you to come and worship and lift your hands in praises and then walk out of the sanctuary and punch your brother in the face and have an unjust society. I want your whole heart, Sunday to Saturday. I want the whole thing. That's what he's talking about. That's what this word blameless describes. It's not saying that we would be perfect. Genesis 16 just happened. So so God knows Abraham's frailty, but what he's calling Abraham and you and me to is to keep growing because here's the point. You can't pass on a faith that you don't have. Uh, And I think a lot of times where we get jammed up in trying to leave a legacy and impact others is we try to pass on a faith that we only have in our heads, but it's not real in our lives. And so we try passing on something that's theoretical to us, not real to us. And the problem with that is what what you pass on from your life is what's real in your life, not just the things that are in your head. And so what we see in this is if we're going to have a legacy where other people are walking with Jesus and more alive because God put us on the planet and somehow graciously worked through us, then we've got to walk wholeheartedly with him. We've got to respond like Abraham, who is by no means perfect even from this point on, But he walks wholeheartedly with the Lord. And the moments he fails are the moments that he is the most humble and bringing the most glory to God as he confesses where he's at. And so this is why I say it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. Part of, I think, walking wholeheartedly that we see in Abraham's life means confessing where we fall short. I say this to you all the time, but the the way that you can tell the difference between someone that, like, actually knows Jesus, is loved by Jesus, has encountered the gospel and someone that's just playing the church game or maybe has no interest in church at all. The way you can tell the difference between a Jesus person and everybody else is what do you do when you fail? Because apart from Jesus, what we do when we fail is we blame others, we make excuses, we try to hide it, we try to cover it up, and whether you do that with religious performance by being good at other things to try to cover up your sin, or whether you do that through just a worldly, I'm going to deny God exists and pretend that thing I didn't, just did wasn't wrong, either way, we're trying to make excuses, we're trying to cover it up. This is the human condition, and only the gospel of grace frees us to do something different in that moment the gospel that we saw in Genesis 15 that says, okay, my relationship with God did not begin based on my faithfulness. And so that frees me up to confess when I fall short instead of blaming others and making excuses and make the situation worse. It frees me up to simply say, I'm sorry, God, I did that. I'm sorry to others that I did that. This is, and it makes us more grateful for Jesus. And see, one of... One of the greatest complaints I hear about Christians, and I'm sure you do, is that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm argumentative, so I want to be like, you think we're hypocrites? Well, look at you, but like, okay, let's have an honest look. Like, don't we do this sometimes where we say one thing and we do another and we pretend that there's not a disconnect in our lives? And so I think one of the most powerful ways that we could impact the lives of others is by when we fail, using that as an opportunity to humbly confess, I'm so sorry I did that to you. That was inexcusable. That was wrong. Would you please forgive me? What I found is I've tried doing that with my non Christian friends, is it can begin people don't respond like that. It jars people, it throws them off. And then you can have a gospel conversation and be like, Man, I am so grateful to Jesus because this is just the real me you're getting to know here. What do you do in those moments? Cause I don't know what I would do apart from him. And now we're having a gospel conversation. The point is to walk wholeheartedly, it doesn't mean that you don't fail. It means that you're living a life of faith. You're walking with God. And when you do fail, rather than pretend, you respond in faith by confessing that, believing that his grace is bigger than that sin, and moving forward in a path of wholeness. And that's what we're going to see throughout Abraham's life. Even as he gives Sarah away a second time. I still can't. We got weeks till we get there. God's really, really gracious. Uh, Number two. Um, so, So he says, walk wholeheartedly before me. And that's something that Abraham does. That's part of his response. But then number two, God says, keep my covenant. Now how? Well, through circumcision. Say what? I mean, think about this. Abraham is 99 years old. And God says to him, you see that rock over there? I want you to sharpen it. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into your tent. I want you to take that rock. And I'm not going to be more graphic than this, but like, if, if it were me, I'd be like, God, is there any other body part we could do this on? Um, could we maybe do like a tattoo or something? Like those will be in like 2,000 years from now. People will think I'm hip. It's gross. It's it's bloody. It's it's, it's on such an intimate part of the body. But here's what God is doing in all of this. He's giving Abraham a physical symbol of this covenant relationship that they share. Something that Abraham, for the rest of his life, would bear in his body and remember that I belong to God. So it is kind of like a tattoo in one sense. Some of you are like, I'd rather have the tattoo. Uh, okay, but here, here's the deal. It's not only for Abraham. Um, God says, I want you to circumcise your children on the eighth day. Um, and all your children among you, everyone, even foreigners, if they would come to live among you, I want you to circumcise them. And, and here's the deal um, eight day olds apparently can't, or uh, uh, yeah, eight. <laughs> Sorry, eight day, eight, eight day, I can't even say this. This is so unbelievable. Maybe that's a sign I shouldn't say it. I'll go for it. Eight day, day olds can't get tattoos. Anybody with me? Like, have you, like, I've seen like tattoo parlors. that will kind of push the limit of 18. Now we'll go a little bit under that. I've never seen a toddler sitting there with their arm rolled up, like give it to me. <laughs> eight day olds cannot give tattoos. Thank you, Jesus, for finally helping me say that. But here's what apparently they can have done. And I'm no doctor. I'm just reading the text. And I've read medical doctors talk about this today. Apparently, an eight-year-old or eight-day-old can be circumcised. And and so this is how you know, by the way, humans didn't write the Bible. Because I wouldn't have thought this up. Like, you know what we should do? We should take our kids and grab a rock. And I mean, let's get it sharp. Let's not be cruel. And then take them and hold them down. I mean, I was there when we tried to hold our girls down to get a shot, like a little needle in the arm. This is next level. Humans wouldn't have thought this up. But this is what God tells Abraham. And what's interesting is thousands of years later, we can actually understand that there's medical benefits to this. This is how, you know, humans didn't make this up. We wouldn't have thought this up. God thought it up. And by the way, I'm starting to get some looks. I'm not weighing into right now if you should circumcise your son or not. I'm not getting into that discussion uh, one bit right now. Um, What what I'm, (laughs) oh goodness. What I'm saying is, this is not that kind of sermon. And I told you at the top, it's not that kind of sermon. You can argue the health benefits all you want. We had three girls, so we didn't even have to go down that route. So God bless you if you do have to navigate this route. Um, what I will say is, your pastor is, is a Bible teacher, as I'll stay in my lane here, is um, you can argue the physical benefits all you want in a spiritual sense. What we see in the scriptures happening here is only a preview of what we will see today. Uh, The spiritual sense has gone on to something greater that we're going to celebrate today. Um, But before we get there, I just, I I do want to look at the preview. I don't know if you're that kind of person, like, I like to see the preview before I go to the movie so I can appreciate when the great scenes come. This is a preview for us of what's going to happen when Jesus comes into the world. So let's look at the preview because it it is important. Even if this isn't still for us in this way, the preview is important. And so, so here's what's going on in the preview. By having Abraham give this sign of the covenant to his children, God is showing Abraham the responsibility he has to pass on this life-giving relationship with God to his children. Now, um, the Bible is clear that it is just a physical symbol and that each child will ultimately have to grow up to make their own choice if they will love and follow the God of their father and mother. This is a narrative all over the Old Testament. It is a physical symbol. What ultimately needs to happen is that our interior life, our hearts need to be circumcised, and when by faith we reach out for the God of Abraham like he did that is the moment that our hearts are circumcised so the Bible will say this is just a physical symbol each child will have to choose from themselves and so I want to say this very clearly even if I'm being repetitive right now this was never intended to save these children Um, To conclude that would be to make the same mistake that the Pharisees did. They said, hey, because we're Abraham's physical offspring and because we've all been circumcised and everyone's like, gross, we don't need to know that info, but they're boasting about it. And Jesus shows up in John 8 and he says, no, what was in view there was not a physical lineage, but a spiritual one. And you sound a lot more like your father, the devil, than you do Abraham. Jesus's words, not mine. Um, The way Galatians 3, 7 says it, is that the children of Abraham in view in this story are not merely physical. It is everyone who shares the faith of this man, Abraham. And so that would include Jewish people who trust in the God of Abraham, but it would also include Gentile people. Thank God it does. Otherwise, this guy up here making circumcision jokes wouldn't get in. And so this was the point I wanted to stress. We are always saved by our faith, not by what our parents do. So don't make the mistake of the Pharisees. But what we see here is that our parents can have a great impact on our faith. And and so if you're a parent, let let me just say this. The greatest legacy uh, that you can ever leave is that your children would worship Jesus after you and go on to live a greater life of faith than even you did. You have an opportunity to set your children up for this by raising them in a home where they hear Jesus talked about, where they hear Jesus prayed to, where they hear Jesus worship, where they hear Jesus at the center of how we're thinking about things as a family, where I would argue where, where you connect the fun that they have to Jesus to say, Jesus is the inventor of fun and he loves you to have a good time. If you will make your place a home where your kids can see The gospel lived out where they can see that God is a loving father who will always love us no matter how far we run or what we do. If you will make your home that kind of environment, again, we're not talking perfection. We're talking wholehearted. We're talking trajectory right now. If your kids can see that you have a real faith and they can see you humbly repent and say sorry when you fail then statistically speaking, your children are far more likely to share the faith that they grew up watching than if they had never seen that faith at all. And I mean, I think it makes sense, right? Like you just have so many more opportunities to embrace a faith that you see every day, not once a week at church or once a year at summer camp, or twice a year at Christmas Eve and Easter. You're just far more, you have so many more opportunities to embrace it. It takes over far more of your imagination. This is what we're seeing. This is why God says, Abraham, this isn't just for you. You've got to bring your kids into this. They're going to have to make their own decisions someday. But Abraham, you have a powerful role to play, and you have a powerful opportunity in the life of your children. And look, even as I say that... Um, I was raised by a single mother, and so I know how some of you are hearing that right now, where you're going, oh my goodness, my home, I'm already behind the eight ball. So let me just stop you right there. You are not alone in this. You are not alone in this. What we see in the Bible is that the church is described in the New Testament as a spiritual family where we care for one another, where we love one another, where we share one another's burdens, where we serve one another. And so hear me, even if you don't have young children in the home right now, you have a responsibility to the kids here. I mean, not if this is your first time and you're just checking things out. Some of you are like, whoa, this is hardcore. I mean, if you call this your home, if you say this is my spiritual family, then according to the New Testament, you have a responsibility to the children that are here. And look, I know this challenges every notion of this hyper-individualistic age we live in. Like, we live in an age where we say, like, Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Go read that story again and find out if he was the good guy in that story. But this is our culture. We say, I can't speak into your life. I can't say anything to you. I'm not my brother's keeper. And we define love as saying nothing when the people around us are hurting and driving their life into a ditch. And so I know I'm pressing up against every instinct that our individualistic culture is pressing down upon us, but I want to let the word of God press down upon our culture and bring us to a healthier place. Because the word of God has no time for that nonsense of, am I my brother's keeper? Jesus, one of his most famous parables, here's the punchline of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yes, you are. It's that simple. Of course you're your brother's keeper. And if you walk by on the road while your brother's bleeding, how can you claim to know God if you just sit there and do nothing? I know I'm pressing up against something in our culture. But I want to give you a positive vision from the scriptures. I know it's going to seem otherworldly. But what we see in the New Testament is that we are a spiritual family. And if you consider this place your home then you have not only a responsibility to the children over in kids' men right now, you have the opportunity to invest in your legacy. I I know there's a lot of talk, well, what if my kids are gone? What if I'm single? What about it? We're all spiritual family here, and you surely need more than two parental figures to raise a child. You ever hear it takes a village to raise a child? This is what Christ has given us in the church. And so let me say this, even if you don't have young kids in the home, It is your responsibility, your opportunity, to create an environment here where the children in this church can see the gospel lived out. It is your opportunity to pray for the children here. I've been so encouraged as you've reached out to me, several of you, and say, I'm praying for your children. I'm like, this is so cool. I love how God has formed that in the church here, that we We're a praying church for the children in this church. It's our opportunity to support the parents in this church who will be on the front lines. I'm not saying you have to show up and change all the diapers. There are folks that are going to be on the front lines, but there's also support units. There's grandparents in the faith that you get to have all the fun and none of the responsibility. You get to say, drop them off. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to give them a ton of spiritual sugar and just send them back to your house. Have fun with that one. We get to have aunts and uncles that are the fun aunts and uncles that take them on the, all the roller coasters. And then when they can't sleep at night, they say, I hope you sleep well tonight, sis. Like we get to become this as a church. To where, to the degree that we have proximity, I want to be clear. I'm like, you, you have to have proximity. We, not all hundred of us can do this with all 20 kids in kids ministry. But to the degree that you have proximity to children in this church, through relationship with their family you can become grandparents, aunts, uncles, aunts in the faith, where the children here. My dream for not only my kids, but every kid that would step through kids ministry, my dream is that these kids would become a part of your legacy, is you help care for them and pray for them and support them in their walk with Jesus over the course of their lives. Um, I grew up in a community like this. This is part of why It's part of why this emphasis of scripture means so much to me. I grew up in a community like this where it wasn't just my mom or my grandparents that were responsible for raising me, but they were a part of a vibrant spiritual family where I had um, aunts and uncles in the faith. I had some really cool older brothers in the faith, uh, only child, and so I'd see these cool older guys, I'm like, that looks fun, I want to hang out with him, I want to copy him. And, and I grew up in this environment, and here's what I can tell you from experience. It had an incredible impact on my soul. Um, now, now, my journey with Jesus, some of you know, was a messy journey. Um, I ended up walking away from church going, that's my grandparents' thing, not mine. I walked away. But, but here's the point. I never once doubted that God was real. There's something about growing up in that community, seeing a community where the gospel was lived out, seeing where Jesus was worshiped, Jesus was prayed to, goodness, it was imperfect. But growing up in an environment like that, there was something about it that I could never quite shake it. So at the point that I'm in college going, I want to have fun. Jesus isn't fun. I want to go have fun. I couldn't quite shake it. I knew he was real. I was just bored. I had some issues in my life. But when my life came crashing down around me, And I was too cool to talk to a parent about it. It was one of those cool older brothers in the faith at church. Took me to Malibu Grill. Told me about the love of God, which I've heard a thousand times before. But something about that relationship, something about that proximity, something about seeing him live a life and trust that he actually knew... There's something about it that connected that truth to my life right where I needed it. And my life has never been the same since that day. And that is what church can be. This is why Satan wants to convince you that this message isn't for you. That if, if you don't have young kids in the house right now, that this sermon doesn't apply to you. Of course it applies to you insofar as you see yourself as a part of the spiritual family here. And my hope is that this would be a place where anyone could come and belong and be a part of our family. Heck, they let me in. There's room for you here. And and so I want to punch Satan in the face this morning by coming together as a community and praying for and blessing the young families that are here this morning to dedicate their children. And so we're going to do that in just a minute. Before we do that, we've just got to look at, at this final question Abraham has for the Lord at the end of our chapter here. Um, because this question will take us from preview to the main attraction, which we'll be celebrating today. Um, so so God promises, he, he comes to Abraham after all the renaming, and he promises yet again to give him a son. And Abraham says, well, I... God, this is awkward. I, I already have a son. You remember the whole thing in Genesis 16? He says, why not bring about your promise through Ishmael? And look, it's so easy to read this story and go, man, Ishmael got a raw deal. Um, I don't even have time, but I want to say this because I feel um, it important. Uh, what God does for Ishmael is basically a preview of what he does for the entire people of Israel. Go go look at the text and what God says. He gives them 12 princes, which is going to map onto the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to bless Ishmael because he's always been a God of all peoples and all nations from the very beginning. There could be a whole sermon there. I got to keep moving right now because we've got some cute babies and children uh, coming up here in just a minute. But God is going to bless Ishmael. But the promise to fix the world, he says, that's got to come through another child. Because what God's been trying to teach Abraham from the very beginning, for the past 20, oh, math, 99 minus 75, 24? What God, thank you, what God has been trying to teach Abraham for the past 24 years is that his plan to bless the world, it's not going to come about through natural means. It's going to come about through supernatural effort. It's not going to come about through human cunning and human ability. It's going to come about in such a way that only God could get the credit. It's going to be something humans couldn't pull off. And remember last week, Abraham could pull off the Ishmael thing. It was dark. It hurt others. It was wicked, but he could do that in his own strength. But God's plan to bless the world is through a miracle that can never be explained by human strength. It's not going to be humans rising up and lifting our way back to heaven. It's going to be God coming down from heaven to fix the world down here. And so God says, in about a year, you're going to have the son that I promised, the miraculous one. He says, my wife's been through menopause. He says, that's okay. I created her. I can create new life in her womb again. And he says, oh, by the way, you're going to name this child laughter because, Abram, I know you're laughing at me on the ground right now, and I love you, but I'm going to get the last laugh on this one. And and we'll see it as we continue in Genesis. God does just as he promised here. Um, Spoiler alert, this child will be born in about a year from this time. And when he is, this is so cool, Sarah laughs. It's this beautiful moment of laughter where God gets the last laugh. As they're all like, I can't believe he did it. He's so good. And the story doesn't end there. Isaac will go on to live a life of faith like his father Abraham. Imperfect, he struggles with some of the same sins, but he has some of the same uh, capacity to trust God that you see in Abraham. It's imperfect, but it's growing even in Isaac. And Isaac's son will have 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And you know the song, some of you. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And so these 12 tribes grow into a mighty nation. To I'm just going to skip very far in the history. By the time you get to King Solomon... And he's ruling on the throne. What we read in the scriptures is kings and queens come from all over the world to be blessed by the God of Israel, to learn from the wisdom of the justice of the laws of Israel, to learn from the worship and the happiness coming from this place in Israel. People come from all over and it looks like the fulfillment of the promise. It looks like everything that God said. But then Solomon Much like his great-great-granddaddy, he makes the same mistake and says one wife's not enough. Maybe two, maybe three, maybe 700, which I don't don't know how you pull off 700 wives. (laughs) I've got one, and I'm like, man, this isn't, my soul, like, my entire life could be explored getting to know her. I don't know how you do 700 wives. Anyway, it's it's not there to be instructive. It's there to say this was a really bad idea, and just like with Abraham, those decisions bring a lot of brokenness, a lot of evil, a lot of destruction, and a lot of heartbreak into God's good world. And 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 that's one of the good guys. That's one of the good kings. There's wicked kings that are a lot worse than that. But this is the cycle we see through the children of Abraham. It's a cycle of just like you see in Abraham's life. Faithfulness, faithlessness. Faithfulness, faithlessness. And the good news is even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. But the world still needs to be rescued. And so in the fullness of time, the cycle is finally broken when there is another miraculous birth. Not to a barren woman this time, but to a virgin. And God himself this time puts on flesh and invades our broken world to put an end to the cycle, to put an end to the one step forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the only truly perfectly blameless one who has ever lived, on the cross, he is cut, he is bloodied in order to accomplish an even greater miracle. And here's the crazy thing. When the New Testament talks about this moment, it uses the language of circumcision. Listen how Colossians chapter 2 says it. In him, that's in Christ, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By the putting off of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's the point. By defeating Satan, sin, and death, Jesus has made a way for sinners like you and me to be made righteous in spite of how we struggle. And so God, who is holy, can send his spirit to dwell within us, because even as we struggle, our sins been dealt with in some crazy way, we are accounted as righteous before God, even as we struggle to live that out. And so because of the coming of Christ, the Holy Spirit can come to indwell God's people and give us a new heart and give us new desires so that we not only have an external sign that we belong to God, but that we can have this internal witness that cries out from our own hearts: we belong to him, we love him, and though we want to be more faithful, we are so grateful to get to worship a God who loves us where we're at. And that is meant to be the normal Christian experience. And if you haven't experienced this, I just want you to notice what we just read there. It doesn't say that you circumcise you. That was Genesis 17. After the coming of Christ, what it says is God circumcises you. God circumcises me. Because here's the big idea. All of this with Abraham was just a preview leading up to this moment when Jesus would come and circumcise us with a circumcision that's more than skin deep that gets to the heart. To not only know the right thing to do, but begin to have these new desires bursting forth from us to actually do it. This is the miracle called regeneration that God does when we believe. And I've been around to know, I've been around long enough to know, maybe there are some of you here this morning that you've been around church for a while and you've just never experienced this. Your faith is something that if you're honest, it's more like Abraham with Ishmael. It's something you're doing in your strength. You have ideas. You, you know the right thing. So you're trying your hardest to live up to it. But you've never experienced that moment where the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart. And you're like, my faith isn't just something I'm doing. It's something God is doing to me. And I'm just the one responding. If you have never had that moment, then here's the good news this morning. He has more for you than you know. He has more for you than you know. And so maybe today is the day that you say, God, I want to experience the supernatural kind of life that you offer in Christ. I want to experience the circumcision without hands. I want to experience your spirit at work in me. I want to experience you working in me for your good pleasure as your word says that you will. I want a taste of this. I want to live a life that can only be explained by your presence in me. Because that is what the Christian life is meant to be. And we see that in seed form in Abraham's story. And that's why God says, we've got to do the second kid. We've got to go through Ishmael. Because I've got to show from the very beginning, the Christian life is something that happens to you before you can respond to it. And this morning, if you're like, I don't know if that's happened to me, my encouragement would be, it might be happening to you right now and ask Him for it this morning. This is how it works. The Christian life is a supernatural life that can be explained by no other means other than God is real, Jesus is alive, and new creation is bursting forth from me. And like I said, this is what we see in seed form in Abraham's story here. And this is why he tells them to wait for Isaac. This is the supernatural kind of life that we get the full attraction that we get to live into this morning. So we'd encourage you to respond as you need to this morning. Maybe you need to ask for the first time. Maybe you need to say, Holy Spirit, would you blow in me afresh this morning? Because I remember that it's been a while. One of the ways that we're going to respond to this all together is by talking about what we get to invite our children into. And so here's how we're going to celebrate that aspect. Again, like I said, you need to do business with God today, but here's something we can all do as one spiritual family this morning. I want to invite the families forward who are dedicating their children today. And um, what's about to happen is two things. Um, number one, these families are going to declare their intentions. Uh, like Abraham saying, I want my child to grow up to worship the God I love. They're going to say, we're going to do our part to be a model of real faith at home and raise them in this. But, but like I said, we, we can't do this on our own. And so what these families are going to ultimately be saying up here is, God, you're going to have to show up and do that which we cannot in the hearts of our children. And so these families are going to take a huge step of faith in just a moment to say, God, we entrust our child to you and we're asking you to do in them what you've done to us. Come right on into the middle here. Um, and, And let me just say this before I introduce the families and we pray. It's not just these families that are having a moment this morning. Like I said, if you consider Fair Oaks your home, then We all have a role to play in this. And so as we pray for these children, it's not just us saying, God, we hope you will empower these parents, hope it goes well, guys. We are asking God to empower us to create this kind of community here. And so I want to introduce the families uh, and then Carol Grieve, our children's ministry director, because we're a family here. I've asked her if she would pray and lead us in prayer.